This week, we're talking to Monique Verdan, a citizen of the United Homa Nation, about how the oil and gas industry has affected her tribal community in southeastern Louisiana. Monique tells this story in her documentary film, My Louisiana Love, which was directed by Sharon Lenezo Hong and covers the time between Hurricane Katrina and the BP oil spill. Monique sat down with us on a rainy day in New Orleans to talk about her continued environmental activism and why we should all be invested in what's happening in Louisiana. I'm Gina Kaysen, and this is About South. Um, so to begin, for some of our listeners who are unfamiliar with Native Nations in Louisiana, um, if you could just describe who are the HOMA and what specific specific issues have you faced as a tribe in southern Louisiana? The HOMA, or UMA, um, HOMA is a Muscogee uh, mobilian word for red, um, and the the umbrella that is the United Homa Nation is a mixed band of uh, Biloxi, Shiramacha, Choctaw, Atakapa, Akolapisa, and other people who lived here in the Mississippi River Delta, who still do live here in the Mississippi River Delta. Um, and so my father's people, um, you know, the when the colonizers came into the territory, which New Orleans is getting ready to celebrate its 300-year colonial founding of the city, but we all know that this was a place of trade long before the colonizers came in. Um, and at that time, the Homa, uh, their principal village was north of uh, the Baton Rouge, the red stick that marked their hunting grounds, which is now Baton Rouge, which is our state capital. And just north of there is what is now called Angola, um, and is the, one of the largest, if not the largest, penitentiary in the world. Um, and that was where the Homa village was. And uh, with French and uh, Spanish alliances, um, you know, the Homa moved more to the west and further to the south um, uh, during, you know, those tumultuous years early on. And so um, the, the Bayou Lafouche, uh, Lafouche means the fork, or they used to call it Lafouche la de la Chiramacha, the fork of the Chiramacha, um, which is a, a distributary of the Mississippi River. And off of that uh, bayou, there are also, they call it the Five Fingers. So there are these other little bayous that kind of jut off. And, and so there were these scattered settlements of indigenous people um, I always say that, you know, we dodged the trail of tears by going deep into the Delta um, and, and living at the ends of the, of the earth, really. Um, and at that time, you know, it was more prairie. You know, yes, of course, we're in a Delta, so there's swamp and there's marsh and there's um, cypress forest and there's bottomland hardwood forest. Um, and, you know, so down each of these little bayous, you had these little scattered settlements and they were all connected by this web of waterways. And, um, and so, yeah, you know, I mean, the, the Huma have faced a lot. Um, and, uh, you know, I think looking back through the lens of history, the last couple hundred years, but if you were to just put a parenthesis around the last hundred years, which I, I believe is what my collaborators and I tried to do um, with my Louisiana love to say, you know, this has been the last hundred years in South Louisiana. Um, 
you know, my grandmother who she just passed, um, in, in April of 2016 and lived to be 101 years old. But I, I always find that, you know, her, um, witness, uh, says a lot about just what has happened here in regards to, you know, not only were indigenous people pushed to essentially the edge of the earth, um, then their land rights were taken from them from fur, um, people who were coming in to, to harvest furs, mink, otter, muskrat were all really big here in the Delta, um, you know, especially around the turn of the century. But then the oil and gas men coming in and essentially taking land rights from folks, um, oil and gas canals and pipelines canals being dredged through our wetlands. Um, you know, you have uh, oil waste pits being put in backyards of, you know, poor indigenous communities that are also in flood zones. Um, and, you know, not to mention that, uh, we, yeah, have this thing called climate change and sea level rise that's happening. And, um, the strength of our storms and the frequency of our tropical weather here is just really, um, been hard for us to, to deal with over the last couple of years. But I think the historical trauma, um, as well, cause you know, <laughs> Prior to the Louisiana Purchase, you know, uh, the, the relationship that indigenous people had with colon the Spanish and the French especially was, was dramatically different from the relationship that, you know, the English and Americans had. Um, not to say that they were all healthy or anything like that, but, you know, it was a different situation. Um, and so, you know, the... After the Louisiana Purchase, you have the Civil War happens not long after that. And then down the bayou, people were either um, classified as being white or being black. And the the Homa, who were, you know, in Terrebonne and Lafourche Parish, people knew that they were les sauvages, you know, the Indians, the, the wild ones that lived out in the, in the marshes. And that discrimination... Um, was a source of oppression for a very long time, I, I would even argue to present day, but it wasn't until, you know, the civil rights movement in the 60s when Homa people were allowed to go to white public schools and, you know, that, you know, that, that's a huge thing. You, that wasn't that long ago, you know, we're not talking about Louisiana Purchase in the 1800s or the Civil War, or even the Civil Rights Movement, you know, I mean, um, we're still struggling to have our young people not only complete um, their education, their high school educations, but also our job forces now completely, almost entirely dependent on the oil and gas industry. So that comes with its own, you know, wicked web of um, complexities. So, And so much of your work has focused on environmental issues and what's happening to Southern Louisiana and how it specifically has affected the Homa community. And so it's also interesting um, to me, your work really tries to hold that in view that people are employed by the oil and gas industry. Mm -hmm. You're dependent on the very thing mm -hmm. that is hurting you. Uh, it's really interesting when we would share my Louisiana love here in Louisiana, as opposed to sharing it in Washington, D.C., or sharing it in California, the conversations that you have, um, people want to understand why, you know, 
why Louisiana is where it is. And I think it's it's not just Hurricane Katrina and it's not just the BP drilling disaster, but that this is a continuum, that this is something that's been building. Um, and I think that, you know, for my personal journey, it was like, you know, <laughs> I was 18 years old and I found out that my cousins had oil waste pits in their backyard and that was like horrifying for me. Um, I think what's even more horrifying is that as years went on, I found out that that was not an isolated situation and that, um, you know, the, 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 then you have these complexities of like, well, almost my entire family works either as welders or boat captains or roustabouts or, you know, just hotshot drivers driving supplies, you know, for the industry. And, you know, I often say that before we had oil and gas in South Louisiana, you have to remember we had cotton and sugar cane. So we've been living under a plantation mentality for a very long time. South Louisiana has recognized that we have this serious problem, right? We're losing land at one of the fastest rates in the world. Um, and so, uh, you know, we have this coastal master plan. It's a 50 year plan, $50 billion plan. Of course, there's no real money that is there, um, aside from the BP drilling disaster fines that are coming through. So those are real dollars that can be put to work. But the long term plan for the restoration of South Louisiana is completely dependent on deep water oil and gas production into the infinite future. So uh, Mary Landrieu, who was a past senator of ours, um, she fought for us to get some of our offshore royalties because we have been getting none, right, for a very long time because of past politicians making bad deals where we didn't even get a deal, right? So 35% of the 35% um, of the of the royalties um, from deep water in the Gulf will be coming back to the Gulf states: Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Texas. And Louisiana has allocated those funds, but it's not going to be coming through until 2018, which is just on the horizon. Um, and so, you know, South Louisiana is like, okay, we got a problem, we got a plan those royalty funds are gonna be going directly to our coastal restoration plan. Well, now the new administration is saying that this, it's called GOMESA, the Gulf of Mexico Energy Security Act, um, that uh, the new administration would like to reallocate those funds to go back to the, na the national treasury or the trust or whatever, which means that we have zero dollars to go to coastal restoration. So I had gone to Paris for um, the Conference of Parties 21, COP21, where all of the international community was coming together for the climate, to come together for a climate agreement, which the new administration also is wanting or is going to, or who knows what's going to happen, but would like to pull out of that um, agreement. And, uh, and when I came back from Paris, I recognized that, uh, you know, every year there are these public lease sales that happen in 
federal waters. And as uh, the Obama administration was taking the Atlantic off the table for deep water drilling and the Arctic was also being kind of taken off the table a little bit, kind of, the Gulf of Mexico was being opened wide up. And it still is. And now instead of having these tracks of the Gulf that are go up for auction, now every time there's an auction, the entire Gulf goes up. Um, except for some of the eastern waters that are near Florida. So really, if you look at, you know, you can actually go, I mean, I, I haven't gone to the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management site in a while, but not so long ago I was doing some research and found that, you know, I think there's 40 deep water rigs in the Pacific. There's like 4,000 in the Gulf of Mexico. that you know there there are communities that um, are already starting to to make the great migration from the coast um, there is a community Ile de Jean Charles which is in the Barataria Terrebonne estuary um, in Lafouche and Terrebonne Parish and my relatives are from a community um, called Point of Michigan, Point of the Oaks which is a neighbor community I mean really you from the island the island of Jean Charles, Ile de Jean Charles, you can see La Pointe or Pornachan. And, um, you know, we've heard a lot in the news about this island recently and how they're the first climate um, refugees or relocators. Um, so it's the first federal grant that was given um, to relocate a community because of climate change. And, um, you know, that's a... It's not happening in isolation, right? The island is just one of many communities along the coast. And I, you know, the, the going back to that coastal master plan, um, so every four years the plan comes out. And the 2017 plan, the best case scenario for the 2017 plan was the worst case scenario for the 2012 plan because climate conditions and sea level rise are happening at such a dramatic rate. And so all of these models came out and, you know, states like, well, um, and so now they have a new component of the plan, which they're calling non-structural adaptation, which has everything to do with humans and community structures. So that means your home, you're either going to sell to the state and they're going to bulldoze it and it's going to go back to the nature or to the water or whatever, or you raise your house up. Um, elevate it. Uh, so, uh, and if you're outside levy protection, in order to get flood insurance, you have to be 18 feet in the air. Um, <laughs> this I mean, that's really high up. Yeah, it's really high up. But the non-structural plan will only elevate your house to 14 feet. So, oh my God. so that's a, I mean, and, and, and again, this plan is very like abstract, um, in that they're like, oh, well, this is our plan, but we don't know how we're going to make the plan happen, you know, or how we're really going to identify. And they've been saying for a long time, you know, that, that some communities will not be able to, you know, to be saved, that there will be communities that will have to be sacrificed. Um, and now they're starting to name those communities, you know, Ile de Jean Charles or, you know, um, there's others that are out there that are kind of being marked because I think what you'll find, um, in South Louisiana is that you go to these places like Ile de Jean Charles or, um, Another end of the world is uh, Delacroix Island, which is in St. Bernard Parish, or Wyclosky, all of these ends of the roads. And where you had these little fishing communities, 
you now have these $500,000 or million dollar camp, what they call camps, which are like these mansions that people use as vacation homes. So as some folks are, their entire life and livelihoods are being like, well, you might not have to stay here. You have other folks who have this as a luxury getaway, you know? So it's just, but they can afford the insurance or they can afford the loss, right? Of their home or camp or boat or whatever it is. I wonder, I mean, the way if people are seeing in the news all of this language of climate relocation and community relocation, how does that inspire people to rally around this shouldn't be happening? This is an unreasonable solution that we're going to move whole communities of people. I mean, that should, to some people's ears, sound like an unreasonable solution. Yeah, it should. <laughs> um, but some people might hear that and say, oh, well, they fixed it. They just moved people. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think the other argument is that, like, well, they shouldn't live there. That's not a place where you live. You don't live there, you know. Um, you know, the homa should not exist. The homa should, according to all, you know, calculations the colonizers should have eradicated that problem um or their problem in quotation marks you know and they haven't you know there's still people at the ends of the ends of the bayous who are saying you know we are indigenous and this is our home even though you know it's not our original place maybe but this has been our home for the last couple hundred years and and we're not going anywhere you know but it's easy to say you're not going anywhere when there's not, like, a big nasty storm in the Gulf of Mexico. It's a whole other thing when you're like, oh, I'm not going anywhere, except I have to evacuate right now. Because the United Homa Nation has no, well, all of the indigenous people, aside from the, the Shitamacha, who are the only federally recognized tribe in, the, in South Louisiana, um, the Homa are only state-recognized even though we have one of the longest standing relationships with the Bureau of Indian Affairs, going back to the Louisiana Purchase, really, when our ancestors um, were petitioning Governor Claiborne for, for recognition of our land rights. Um, and of course that didn't happen and we've been petitioning the federal government ever since. people down the bayou who own a shrimp boat they walk out of their house they have their boat in their front yard their whole community in that little part of the bayou is their their entire world is how they make their money it's their family it's their everything and you tell those people to go somewhere else and do what <laughs> you know i mean well it's removal yeah i mean this is mm -hmm. i mean it it's Indian removal mm -hmm. in a lot of cases. Not all of these communities are Native communities, mm -hmm. but it's the policy of, and I thought it was so interesting how you started saying, I mean, this is a continuation of a plantation economy that has exploited land and people, mm -hmm. right? That the oil and gas industry, there's been a plantation system here. Mm -hmm. And then that just like with 19th century removal, it's the plantation economy that puts pressure on this. Mm 
Yeah. I mean, I, it's disturbing how much it's kind of the same story with slightly different yeah. packaging. We went from the colonial system to the corporate system. And so, um, you know, and, and really along the Mississippi River, where there were plantations, now sits petrochemical refineries. Um, it's the same. It's the same thing. You know, it's just a, a new product, you know. Um, a, a product that's even more toxic, you know, maybe. I, uh, I mean, you know, it depends on... Because <laughs> the thing is, is that the Petro, you know, yeah, maybe you don't live on a fence line, but you will be affected by carbon changing the climate, no matter where you live. You can live on a coast, or you can live in the middle of the United States, or wherever. You can live in Antarctica. You are going to feel it. Like, we are all feeling it and will continue to feel it and I think when I came back from Paris you know I'd met all of these indigenous people from all over the world um Alaska I met the some folks from um the Sami from um Norway Pacific Islanders uh First Nation people from Canada um these amazing women from the Amazon and with everyone's story, it was like the same story that I knew, that I know of South Louisiana, just a different mask on it, same story. And I also thought, oh, we've been doing this a little bit longer than you. And I also thought, wow, what if my ancestors, you know, my elders, my grandmothers were like those women in the Amazon who were like standing in front of the oil and gas companies and they're like, no, you're not going through here. This is our land. And we're protecting this forest because it has rights. Um, and I think that, you know, unfortunately, uh, we weren't able to step up and speak out in that way at that time. But we can now. too I mean especially lately with all of the press um, about the Dakota Access Pipeline I sort of had this moment where I was like people in Louisiana have been talking about this for a long time and that doesn't mm -hmm. lessen the seriousness of the Dakota Access Pipeline mm -hmm. and that struggle but no one is talking about very similar problems and projects in Louisiana mm -hmm. because it's just almost written off sometimes I feel like popularly it's written off as a given of course we're going to put this through Louisiana as yeah. if Louisiana has no agency or something right. like what well, I don't know if it's proximity to the gulf or just such this kind of well, given logic yeah I mean so the I don't know you can call it the head or the tail of the black snake but um Dakota Access Pipeline is owned by Energy Transfer Partners, and they are preparing to run a pipeline, which they're calling the Bayou Bridge, across our Atchafalaya um, Basin, which is one of the most beautiful, amazing, majestic cypress forest, and has no protection, really. Um, but you also have to remember, we have 80, I, wonder, I think the number is like 83,000 miles of pipeline that's already onshore in South Louisiana. It's already been laid. 
And a lot of that has been laid in the 50s and the 60s. So you have this decaying infrastructure that is also surrounded by this disintegrating landscape. So, um, yeah, that's happening already. But then to talk about bringing, you know, some of the dirtiest crude, you know, from the Bakken shale through the Dakota Access Pipeline to Illinois. And when it gets to Illinois, there's a transfer station there. And then there's a pipeline also owned by Energy Transfer Partners that follows the Mississippi, Mississippi River watershed through some of the poorest communities in the United States. And then it cuts across the Mississippi in northeastern Louisiana, goes to Texas to another transfer terminal, and then doubles back across Louisiana, the Atafalaya Basin, and then there's um, the company wants optionality, which means they want to play the market so that they can get the best price. So there is an export terminal in Lake Charles, but then there's an, uh, another one that's in St. James Parish, which is right on the Mississippi River. So And that's where they're wanting to take the Bayou Bridge. So, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, you know. Really, people? <laughs> like, And then to go back, I mean, I, I, not to play devil's advocate, but just to be like, what is our logic here? Because, one, that pipeline's going through a coastal zone. Um, and so we're petitioning right now for, you know, an environmental impact study to happen, which, how can you run a pipeline through a... <laughs> you know, a watershed, it crosses like 700 bodies of water or something like that. And that's just through the Atchafalaya Basin, just this, you know, stretch of South Louisiana. But it's like, how do you do that and not have an environmental impact study statement? I don't know. What what are you guys doing? You know, you're just like writing off the permits. And so, um, and then on top of that, it's like, okay, if we need the restoration of South Louisiana to happen and our only real dollars are going to be coming from deep water exploration, then why are we bringing this cheap crude across the country to export to international markets? Like, who does that benefit? Because we're only going to get 12 real jobs here in South Louisiana. I mean, yeah, there'll be contractors on the front end, but in the long term, 12 jobs for what? Risking like... A blowout. I mean, and the Dakota Access Pipeline is already leaking. Energy Transfer Partners has one of the worst records in the world, probably. So I just, I don't get it. You know, it's like, what? Who's, yeah, you know, I mean, whose interests are served by yeah. this? I mean, even if you were pro offshore drilling, this doesn't even seem like right. you would want this. Right, exactly. Exactly. You know, that's one thing is that we often feel, we meaning the grassroots organizers who I work with here in the South, you know, we, we feel like we're often used as the best worst example, right? When all the big greens want to talk about like why you don't want to do something, they're like, oh, don't you remember Louisiana? We don't want that to happen. But then they never say like protect the Gulf or something, you know, it's like protect the Atlantic or protect the Arctic, you know, it's like, you don't want it to happen. Like you saw what happened in the Gulf. Don't let it happen here. You know, we're just like, Oh my God, have we been forgotten? Like, can we protect us? Can we do something for us? And yeah. It's hard to be like, save Louisiana. You don't want to do what happened to Louisiana. <laughs> <laughs> it's a terrible movement slogan. That's like, yeah. Yeah. And it ends up being, individuals like you were saying though who are the ones that can help to make the change happen but it will take all of us you know to kind of get on board and I think that 
um, I don't know. I don't know where, where we're going, honestly. I mean, I think that um, it's been kind of surprising to see so many people um, here in New Orleans specifically because it's not really like a... It's a big festival town, not a big, like, activism town, you know? And so, you know, getting people to come out, getting people to speak up, getting people to be involved and engaged in the movement... Um, it's a challenge for us, but uh, there's been more people showing up for, you know, what like last year in March, we had 300 people show up for an action that we had at the Superdome, wherein the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management was having one of these lease sales. And so we had 300 people. And it's a public auction, so they have to let the public in, right? And we're at the Superdome, which was the place of last resort for climate refugees during Hurricane Katrina, which you're like, oh my God, really? You guys are having that meeting at the Superdome? You're going to auction off the Gulf of Mexico in the Superdome where the climate refugees were? Okay. So we all kind of stormed into this building and, you know, it, you like find yourself, you're like, this is how it goes down? Like this is... These guys standing at this podium, reading from this list, who's going to get that piece of land? Like, this is it? Like, you guys are making, you know, I'm always just like, really? This is how it happens? You know, I, I went to um, Shell's annual general meeting last year in, at The Hague. And same thing where it's like, oh, there are like these 10 guys that are sitting at this board who are making decisions that will affect millions of people. And they're just like... Oh, well, Nigeria's got problems. There's earthquakes because of fracking. Oh, you know, it's just like, <laughs> well, I'm picturing just like <laughs> dumpy dudes in bad khakis are just like sitting around and they're kind of like, oh, yeah. They were in nice suits. But oh, good. They... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that makes it better or worse. Like, was... I'm picturing them just kind of schleppy. Yeah. They, I mean, they were no movie stars. They didn't look like happy people. <laughs> just... Nor should they be. <laughs> But I'm just was just like, you know, it's just one of like power, what power looks like. Um, it, it just kind of baffles me. It's like, how did you get to that position? Like, how did how do you get to sit at that table and make those decisions for the planet, essentially? You know. South Louisiana has made some of the biggest sacrifices for the birth of a nation. And um, we often get treated like, you know, it's our fault that we're in the situation that we're in. And the reality is, is that, yes, we live in a delta. Yes, this is a dynamic system. But we have had man intervene over and over and over again. And even our coastal restoration plan is this, you know, unprecedented kind of radical restoration that is man meddling again with nature for I would argue that they're wanting to protect infrastructure and industry more than people or what is this amazing um, biodiverse womb. <laughs> I don't know why the Gulf has been identified as the sacrifice zone but it it feels that way and I get like, okay, well there's already the infrastructure that's laid, but when do we 
set ourselves free from, you know, this kind of false promise that the industry is going to, you know, make our lives better. Gulf states have been either sacrificing themselves or sacrificing people mm-hmm. to colonial and or corporate implantation economy. I don't know that the rest of, is it already such a sacrifice, like sacrificial space where the rest of the nation is like, oh, just repress all, like as long as all the problems stay there, <laughs> then we don't have to think about it. You know, mm-hmm. like this is where enslaved labor and land exploitation built the rest of the country. And this is where land exploitation and this labor will continue to support mm-hmm. the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know that's so dark. No, it is dark, but it's real. I mean, I think that, you know, we have to think about it that way because I I, I think we don't. <laughs> you know, I, I, I want to say that... Um, you know, even Louisianians who live on the fence line, who know that the petrochemical industry is all around us, who have the aunts and the uncles and the cousins and the grandmas and the mamas and the daddies who are died of cancer because of being exposed to these toxins. You know, I think even them, it's hard to, to say the truth that like we got here because of this. And, um, I'm part of the problem too. You know, I recognize that, that I, you know, I was born into this system. You know, I didn't, this is not what I would dream, <laughs> you know? And I think that um, we need to start dreaming a different dream because, you know, this isn't working. When we were finishing My Louisiana Love, some of our advisors were like, oh, well, you should have direct the people to such and such or put the, you know, no, no, no. We were just kind of like, no, we don't know. We don't have the answer and we don't want to act like we do. We just want to say this is what we do know, (laughs) you know, and this is how we got here. And I'm really so grateful to my collaborators and, um, you know, everyone who, who helped to make My Louisiana Love possible that it's out there in the world telling the story. And when I travel with it, people who don't know Louisiana are always like, thank you so much for like showing me that in that way, because I just saw the news about Katrina or BP and I didn't realize that there was all of this that was behind it. So My Louisiana Love is gonna be available for streaming for a short period of time? Yes, uh, My Louisiana Love is part of Vision Maker, which is a Native American public um, television producers. They were they were our producers um, for our film. And so they have this series called 40 Years, 40 Films. So 40 years of indigenous made films um, that will be available to stream online um, starting on July the 18th. My Louisiana Love will be available Um, for the whole week for free streaming and at that time it will also be um, on local public television um, stations across the country. 
Thank you for listening this week. We strongly encourage you to check out My Louisiana Love, streaming now from Vision Maker Media or on your local PBS station. You can find the links on our website, aboutsouthpodcast.com, under Learn. We owe an enormous thanks to Monique Verdan for talking to us about these issues. About South is brought to you from the historic West End of Atlanta, Georgia. Kelly Vines and Enjoy Danto are my co-producers. Lindsay Baker is our marketing director. Brian Horton supplies our music. You can find his music at brianhorton.com. You can find us at aboutsouthpodcast.com, as well as on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages. Next week, we're talking to David Davis about that other upstart podcast about the South, S-Town. Until then, take care of yourselves, and we'll see you next week. say that I love Louisiana because we kind of um, we like live with our trash you know and when I first started traveling when I was young and I was like oh I went to Atlanta and thought it was like the cleanest place ever which is funny to think about now when I live in Atlanta a few months ago there was like a dead goat on the sidewalk in my neighborhood and so yeah I mean it's super clean until people put their goats out